the history of banking. This is Industry Focus Financials Edition. Welcome to the show. Today is Monday, March 28th, 2016. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on the phone is John Maxfield. Today we have a super great show lined up on the history of banking in the United States. Um, shout out to William Necht, one of our listeners. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. He wanted to hear more about Walter Riston, and you are going to get way more than you asked for. I, I don't know if you all know this, but both Maxfield and I were history majors in college. Correct? That's true for you too, right? You know what? I hate to say it, but I was an econ major. Although, what? as little as I learned in college, <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell you for sure. Maybe I was a history major. Mm. You seem like a history major to me. It's probably why you and I get along. Um, so, kind of let me let me lay this out for you like I would one of the students that I used to tutor in college um, when they would really whiningly ask me why it's important to study history. Uh, history illustrates the themes of humanity. You know, and when I was growing up, when I was a kid, uh, my father was a great believer in the classics. So all of my bedtime stories were about Roman legions and German and German philosophers, and I don't know what, because in the words of my father, because I believe most of our uh, podcast listeners speak English and not Spanish, those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. He doesn't actually sound like that, but he does have kind of a deep voice, and I have kind of a high voice. So I just that was my best impression. That was. That was the best I could do. <laughs> um, so, banking, banking in the United States, uh, kind of complicated story. Maxfield and I were, were having a, a heated, well, a spirited discussion about uh, about the founding fathers and kind of what their vision was for banking in the United States. And we both agreed that we were both Adams and uh, Hamilton fans. So, if you're a Jefferson fan, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> um, but the, the the real history of U.S. banking started. During the Civil War, in in the United States, do you wanna do you wanna lead off with that, Maxfield? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things to just kind of just a, a general points to keep in mind is that banking is you know it's really easy to uh, vilify banking and bankers, right? I mean, these guys are just they just deal with other people's money, right? As I think is the, is the famous saying, and and they just get rich doing that. But what's really important to remember is that. Banking is a really critical part of the growth of any com- or any economy, right? I mean, really, there's only three variables ultimately that dictate economic growth: as labor, capital, and productivity. And what banks do is they provide capital, so they are really, really important. And so then, if you look at well, I mean, different countries have different ways that their banking systems operate. And really, if you look at the United States banking industry, and you want to know, you know, the the origins of our current banking system, like Gabby said, you have to go back to the Civil War. And that's because before the Civil War, there were no national banks because, it, you know, to kind of allude to that divide that Abby was talking about, you had the Jeffersonians on one side that were very opposed to big banks, uh, big concentrations of money. And then you had the Federalists on the other side, um, you know, Woo. George Washington, John Adams. <laughs> And Hamilton and all these guys, right? Just in and, case you're curious which side of the line I fall on. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think we know. I think Gabby made it pretty clear where we where we kind of stand on this. Well, in the Civil War, that all of that changed. National banks came into effect, and they came into effect because the North needed money. 
And really, the best way for a government to get money, and particularly at the time, was to go through banks, which would not only buy the bonds of a government, but then syndicate those bonds to other banks and to other investors. That's true. And this is actually something that the South really struggled with during the Civil War. Um, they just had no really good way to raise money. Um, people donated stuff, but that's kind of, I mean, and they did they did have all this other stuff with the bonds and the crazy money. And you go to any museum in the South and they have like the Confederate dollar bills and stuff like that. But that was definitely a major difficulty for the South because they were so decentralized. Um, the one of the things that the federal government did, uh, the union, the union side did, um, just in case for our listeners who are not familiar with the Civil War, because this is actually a question I get a shocking amount. The Union is the North, the Confederates are the South. I'm just gonna lay that out there. You'd, you'd be shocked by how many people don't know that. Anyway, um, what the what the Union did was uh, towards the end of the war, they 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 did these two national banking acts. That's exactly right. In 1863 they did a National Banking Act. In 1864, they did a National Banking Act. And what that basically allowed you to do is it took the power to issue money away from state banks. Before the Civil War, think about this. Just, you know, Gabby and I could open up a bank and wherever. I know, Gabby, you, you trace your roots kind of to a certain extent to Nebraska, and so do I <laughs> to a certain extent. And so we could open up, you know, just a frontier bank in Nebraska and just issue money. Right. Well, that all changed with these National Banking Act. And so kind of one of the interesting things is that, you know, nowadays there are three main regulators on the federal level for banks, the first of which is the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. That is the primary regulator of national banks. And so you think like, well, why don't they just call it like the National Bank Regulator or something like that? When the reason is that because Banks, the role that they play in large part is to issue currency. So when you think about the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of Currency, and, and its origins in the National Banking Acts of the, of the Civil War, that's really kind of where all those things come from. Right. So we have this first component of banking in the United States set up during the Civil War. So then you get into the Gilded Age. This is post-Civil War. Um, the the South anyway is totally devastated. There's some people who want to industrialize the South. The North is way ahead in that respect, and this is when really industrialization takes off in the United States. You have a lot of foreign money coming in. You have uh, the rise of the railroads. People are linking all of the country via railroads. Railroads really changed America. It's it's weird to get so excited about like kind of about trains. It's kind of like a pursuit for kind of guys in their basement with the little train sets, which is which is cool. But no, like the, the railroad itself was an incredible um, leap forward in America. Oh, I mean, the railroad was so important. I mean, if you think of not only did it connect one side of the country to the other side of the country, which didn't happen until 1869, but it also was really the birth of these massive massive industrial concerns, right? right? And that is where you had, and, and that's why banks were so important during this period, to fund those. Absolutely. And the interesting thing about this period, right, is that we only have the office of the comptroller of the currency. So that means that there is no, there's still no central regulator for banks. And so you're having these really frequent panics and financial crises, what, on average, every six years, I think? Yeah, you had, you had a banking panic or crisis on average, once every six years during the Gilded Age. Yeah, and you had you ended up having two like fairly big depressions, not as big as the Great Depression, obviously, but in the 1870s and 1890s, 
these were financially devastating events. Yeah, I mean, if, if you think about, you know, we like to think about, oh, you know, when you look at the United States history, that really, really the bottom point was the Great Depression of the 1930s. And to a certain extent, that's true. But to, at that point, I mean, that is very unusual to think about today, because even though we went through the financial crisis, it certainly didn't turn into a Great Depression. But at the time, depressions were actually a pretty common occurrences. And the reason, kind of to allude to what Gabby's getting at, is that because we only had the OCC, we didn't have the Federal Reserve, we didn't have the FDIC, banks would fail all the time. And that would take all these people, people's savings, and then they would have no money. Absolutely. Um, so, sorry, I just have to laugh because my mother pointed out to me the other day that I say absolutely all the time on the show and I don't say it in real life. But you are correct, John Maxfield. Uh, one, one of the things that um, that was really interesting about this to me, this, this whole history of the banking crisis, is that a lot of times people portray bankers as these fat cats, kind of like you talked about at the beginning of the show. Um, especially guys like J.P. Morgan. Like you hear J.P. Morgan, you think of this giant investment international bank, right? But the original J.P. Morgan was actually, I mean, in his own way, kind of a good guy because during these uh, these financial crises, the little panics that they had, him and a few other bankers would get together and kind of act a little bit like a central bank to help these other banks out to keep them from failing. Yeah, and really, you know, if you think about J.P. Morgan, I mean, he he is the you know, maybe the, the, the greatest banker in American history. And, and one of the reasons is, is because, you know, during the Gilded Age, we had just this explosion of industrialization, right? That's really when the United States turned into the economic powerhouse that we are today, is during the Gilded Age. And how did that happen? Where did the financing for that come from? Well, that came from, in large part, Europe. And J.P. Morgan, what they did is, and this is the reason they became so successful, is they were the primary bank that brought money from Europe and England in particular over to the United States to invest in railroads, to invest in steel companies and, and all yeah. these different things. It's expensive to industrialize. A lot of people don't think about this, but like, say you're a farmer during the Industrial Revolu uh, Revolution, you have mechanization happening right um so if you are going from like your horse and a plow to a tractor like that's a very expensive purchase you need these banks to to finance this for you even just on an individual level that's exactly right that's exactly right and and kind of that the second piece to this whole thing is that because we did not have a federal reserve and what, a, I guess, because we didn't have a central bank, we call it Federal Reserve, but it, it really is a central bank. Because we didn't have that, when the economy got into trouble, there was nobody there to kind of bail the banks out and to help them out, right? To survive these things, to protect investors, or to, 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 to protect depositors' money and all these different things. And so what kind of came, out, came about was that J.P. Morgan headed up kind of a group a, a triumvirate, if you will, of three different bankers, himself at the head of his firm, J.P. Morgan, a guy by the name of James Stillman, who was heading up Citibank of New York, which is now, you know, you go through multiple iterations, that is now Citigroup, which is really the oldest of our big banks. It traces its roots back to 1812. And the third member of this group was a guy named George Baker. And he ran a bank called the First National Bank, which was literally the first National Bank to get a charter under the Banking Acts of 1863 and 1864. And what these guys did, they would get together 
and they would pool their resources of their banks and then pull other banks into this pool that could then use that pooled money to save banks that were perfectly well capitalized but were experiencing runs by depositors. And let me just, just give a couple, just a, a brief insight into how, how these bank runs happen. So the way that bank run happens is, you know, you're sitting at home minding your own business, you hear that the bank you have your money deposited in has maybe made some bad loans and you think it could fail, or you're gonna go and get your deposits out, right? So then everybody does the same thing. They take all this money away from the banks. Well, banks, because they're leveraged institutions, they can't convert loans into cash and then pay that for you, pay that back to their depositors quickly enough. So what they do nowadays is they go to the Federal Reserve, they put those assets up for collateral, and they get cash. Well, and then that's how they can satisfy their depositors. Well, at the time, there was no Federal Reserve, and that's what JP Morgan Chase, or now it's called JP Morgan Chase, but that's what JP Morgan did with George Baker of the First National Bank and with what is today Citigroup, but at the time it was Citibank of New York. Right. So these guys are kind of chugging along just fine, but then there's a major catalyst um, in. 1906, there was an earthquake that devastated San Francisco. And the problem is that a lot of San Francisco, um, the, the people that insured them, they were in New York. So suddenly they get this rush of insurance claims. And all this money is going out in New York. And people are starting to get worried like, hey, am I, am, am I going to be able to keep my money in, in the bank? Like, where, you know? Um, so, so this is kind of the catalyst that ended up creating the Federal Reserve. That is exactly, exactly right. So, 1906, you had this, this horrible earthquake in San Francisco, but even worse than the earthquake was the fire that started afterwards. Now, I don't know, you know who collects these statistics, and I don't know how it's possible to be accurate, but I have read that the fire that followed the, earth, the San Francisco earthquake in 1906 destroyed something like two-thirds of that city. Well, all those buildings, they had insurance on those. So then that caused you know, this huge outflow of money from the system which then triggered another banking panic. J.P. Morgan, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase, gets together with, again, James Stillman, who gets together with George Baker. And these guys do their normal thing. They come together, they, they pull all this money, and they're able to stop the panic this time. But the American people, after, this was now 40 years, okay, where you basically have it was a either roller coaster. a financial, well, sorry, sorry, what was that? It was a roller coaster, economically yeah, speaking, yeah, for the United States. Yeah, Total nightmare. Just constant. Right? Imagine being on a roller coaster for 40 years with your money, and that's what was happening in the United States. Yeah. Once every six years, a depression or a financial crisis. I mean, what a total nightmare. And it was at that point where the bankers got together and said, and with, uh, with some senators got together and said, look, we've got to do something about this. And that is really where the origins of the Federal Reserve come from. And just, just kind of a side note on this, uh, on the San Francisco earthquake. So Bank of America, when you look at the origins of Bank of America, it traces its roots back to 1904 when a guy by the name of A.P. Giannini founded the bank. But he didn't found it as Bank of America. No, he founded it as Bank of Italy. Well, the reason that Bank of Italy was able to get so much traction so quickly, besides the fact that Giannini was a respected guy in the San Francisco business community, was the fact that during, after that great fire, he opened up shop. He went to his vault, took all the money out, and literally set up a table outside and started his bank, giving loans and taking deposits once again. And he was really the first bank in that area to get up and going again. That's 
insane. There you go. American entrepreneurship in action. Um, I was actually in New Orleans last weekend and there was this guy at this festival who had a vodka bottle under his arm and he was selling shots for $5, two shots for $5, just walking down the street. Definitely didn't have like a health license or anything like that. I was like, there you go. That is the spirit that makes America great, I guess. <laughs> it's probably a 60% discount from what you'd get in the bar. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> pretty good deal. Good business model. Um, so Federal Reserve gets created. We're doing okay. You get you have the roaring 20s, right? The stock market, all that. And then the Great Depression hits. Great Depression, total disaster. Total right? disaster. But it didn't start as it didn't start out as a depression. Yeah, and that's the that's what's so interesting about the Great Depression. Uh, 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 that it was a normal recession going into it. But what happened was that the Federal Reserve at the time, the Federal Reserve, was, we, we had one at that, right? We had a central bank. So you're thinking, well, why wasn't the Federal Reserve able to stop this? Well, kind of the consensus among historians is that there was infighting between the different, the, all the different Federal Reserve branches and the Central Monetary Commission in Washington, D.C. Because there was a guy by the name of Benjamin Strong, who was the first you know, head of the central bank, who had passed away before that. So they weren't able to come in and and stop the Great Depression. But what, what it was is you had a, a recession that then turned into the Great Depression because of literally thousands of bank failures and people lost their savings and that, that just turned it into, um, in, in, into what, it, what it was. Right. And so part of, obviously, the Great Depression, I think everyone remembers, is this, this terrible day on the stock market. Um, and that, and combined with the bank failures, you end up with something called the Glass-Steagall Act. Right. So, so, if you think about the financial crisis we just dealt with, the Dodd-Frank, well, Glass-Steagall was basically the Dodd-Frank of the Great Depression. So, you went from a relatively um, unregulated, to a certain extent, banking industry to a very, very strictly regulated bank industry. And what Glass-Steagall did in particular is it separated a bank's investment banking activities which is issuing bonds, underwriting stocks, uh, things like that, trading and securities, uh, all those types of things, from your commercial banking activities, which is just you know, taking deposits and making loans. And what's interesting about Glass-Steagall is that there is, I, I, this is an analysis I've, I've, I've come across on multiple, in multiple books, there is reason to believe that it was really backed in large part by Chase, which is now part of J.P. Morgan, right, and by the Citibank of New York, which is Citigroup. And the reason they backed it so much is because they had large commercial banking activities, large depository activities, but J.P. Morgan, which at the time was the leading bank in the country, was really largely dependent upon investment banking. So they knew that if, look, if we can separate J.P. Morgan's investment banking business from its commercial banking business, we'll be able to take the lead. And that is where, it was at that point, that Citigroup went from being kind of the second to third largest bank and the second to third largest player in the industry to really dominating it for many decades after that. And this is why people think bankers are sneaky. <laughs> <laughs> so, post-Glass-Steagall, it's not a ton really happens. In banking, we're gonna we're gonna fast forward to the 1970s when there's an oil crisis. Um, do you? I, I don't know when you were born, Maxfield. <laughs> I was born um, in 1980. Oh, okay, never mind that. I was gonna say, do you remember OPEC? I mean, they're still I, around, actually. 
<laughs> they are still around doing their thing. Uh, just so you guys know, I've never actually met John in person. I actually don't even really know what you look like. I've only ever talked to him on the phone. So that's why that's why I didn't really know. Um, so OPEC, there's kind of this manufactured oil and energy crisis in the United States in the 1970s. This is what people think about when they think about the, the cars lining up at the gas stations and uh, oil rationing and people could only go in depending on what your license plate number ended in and stuff like that. Yeah, and and this what's so funny is that you know we, people yeah I I don't know how well known the oil crisis of 1973 that was the first one there was another one another oil shock in later 1970s but the the oil shocks in the 70s they fundamentally transformed the financial industry in the United States and the reason that happened was you know you had these really strict regulations coming out of the financial crisis that among other things limited. They set a cap on the interest rate that banks could pay on deposits. Well, when you had the oil shoot up, I mean, I can't remember exactly what, I mean, it went up from like a buck a bit. I, I, don't quote me on exactly, but, but I'm just saying this to, to, to illustrate the magnitude. It went up from like a buck a barrel to something like 80 bucks a barrel. I mean, it was a, a huge, huge increase. And that triggered very rapid inflation in the United States. Well, when you have inflation, you also have interest rates increasing and increasing and increasing. Well, the banks were stuck in this position where they were having to pay like 20% to borrow money that they, they, they were then lending out on these fixed rate 30-year mortgages that were on their books for 8%. So it created this really bad situation for banks that caused them to do multiple different things. And the leader of this group, of the group that was that was really... Uh, pushing change and transformation in the bank industry was a guy named Walter Riston at what is now Citigroup. And what he did was he said, look, we need to unchain the interest rates that banks pay to borrow money from what was called Regulation Q, which was the cap. So he came up, they came up with all these innovations that unchained that. And then he also was pushing. So hold because, on, go back a second. Oh, go for it. What was what was uh, Regulation Q for? Like, why did this cap exist in the first place? So the the theory behind Regulation Q, there's there's a couple different things, but the main theory behind Regulation Q is that if you go back all the way back to the Gilded Age and, and before that, banks that would pay at a high rate of interest for their deposits were generally more susceptible to failure. Because then if they got into trouble, the reason that people had money there was almost as an investment. So they would pull it out very quickly as opposed to just putting it there and kind of forgetting about it, right? And the other reason that Regulation Q was in effect was that the United States wanted to promote local lending by savings banks or savings and loans, right? And so what they did is they allowed savings and loans to charge a higher interest rate to gather deposits than they allowed commercial banks because commercial banks would then theoretically take the money that was deposited in rural areas and bring it to money centers, which would then drain that money out of there. Right. So this leads us back to the energy crisis and these these banks that are um, paying out these interest rates on the on the deposits that are twenty percent plus, and then having these loans that are eight percent. Um, and this is what led to the savings and loans crisis of the nineteen eighties, which is where a ton of these small banks just collapsed. They just disappeared. They got bought up by bigger banks because they just couldn't function anymore. Yeah. I mean, literally many, many thousands of savings and loans, thrifts and banks failed during the, during the 1980s in particular as, as a result of that. And you can think about it like this, like, 
It would be like if you run a bookstore and you are buying books for $20 a book and selling them from $8 for $8 a book. It's just it, not a very good business model. Right. So then you get to Walter Riston, who says, you know, I think, I think that we can do better than this. Right. And he says, look, there's two ways that we can get around these interest rate caps. The first way is that we can issue negotiable certificates of deposits. So CDs, right? Negotiable CDs that were not, limited, were not capped by those interest rate requirements. And that, so they could, they could bring in all this money from big corporations that needed to, get some, to earn some interest, rate on their, some interest on their money, but they wanted it in safe big banks. And then the second thing that, that, that Riston and Citigroup did was they said, look, we can go to what's called the euro dollar market, which you know, after you, know, you had that explosion in the energy crisis, you had all these dollars, because oil trades in dollars, all these dollars accumulating abroad because of you know, Saudi Arabia was accumulating Venezuela, all these, other all these other countries were accumulating these dollars. Well, those dollars stayed in Europe and stayed overseas, but they were, uh, they were not susceptible to those interest rate caps. So banks could borrow those dollars for either, they could pay more to borrow those dollars or they could pay less depending on what it was. But what, what mattered is that they were not limited by regulation Q. Oh, and then they did one other thing at Citigroup that, that allowed them to finance the bank through ways other than your core deposits. They started issuing commercial paper at the bank holding company level. So you, basically what this did to banks is it transformed them from these depository institutions to basically highly leveraged financial funds that deposits only provided some of the funding for. Right. So this is when we look at banks today, we look at how much of their income is from fees and how much of it comes from interest. That's one of the most basic things you do when you look at a bank today. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, did Walter Riston come up with variable rate mortgages or like loans? Was that something he did? He did. He also came up with which is brilliant, if terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's totally, it's totally brilliant. And and it, it, so what it did is, so at the time, you know, you would just like write. First of all, there weren't actually term loans for the most part before Walter Riston and, and his predecessor George and, and and his predecessor George Moore came into effect. They really just would do very short term loans that would roll over time and time, year on a yearly, monthly basis for corporations. Well, Moore and Riston came in at Citigroup and they said, look, let's do longer term loans. But as opposed to doing a fixed interest rate, which would get you into that position where the, the thrifts were during the savings and loan crisis, where if the short term interest rates went way up, but you were locked into 8%, you know, say 8% 30 year mortgages where you, know, you, could, you could lose a lot of money. They said, look, let's tie the interest rate on term loans to the prevailing interest rate in the market. So that way, if the interest rates in the market go up, well, then the, loan, the, the interest rates on these loans will go up. So that protected them from so-called interest rate risk. Right. So we have this uh, consolidation. We have our first national banks appearing because of other regulations that got a little bit loosened during this era. Um, so before this, you couldn't have branches that went across straight sorry, across state lines. Um, but post uh, savings and loan crisis, that is something that that happened. Um, and also the the Glass-Steagall Act was loosened up a little so that investment banks and commercial banks could kind of be housed under the same umbrella. That's right. So this kicked off, the oil crisis kicked off a period of very, very significant deregulation in the United States. And, and to Gabby's point, three things in particular happened. First, banks, for the most part across the country, were then allowed to start branching. Before this, 
that branching branch bank branching the regulations that was dictated on the state level. So some states, like California, allowed it. And that's one of the reasons Bank of America was able to get so big, because it could have hundreds, thousands of branches across the state, whereas you know, banks in, say, Kansas could only have one location. So branch banking was started, started to be allowed by, on, on the national level. The second thing is that interstate banking. So before this, banks could not have branches or other offices in other states. They're limited to the state that they were founded in. So, but that was opened up in the, in the time period between the oil crisis and today. And, and then the third thing that really changed was that Glass-Steagall was really chipped away at. And then that's where you started to have, you know, these huge universal banks that have, again, investment banking operations and commercial banking operations. And that these are like your Citigroups, right. your JP Morgan Chases, and, and your Bank of America's. technically separated inside the banks, but like they can operate under the same corporate structure now that's right and their balance sheet is i mean any any they're, they're technically they do different things right mm-hmm. but they all use the bank's balance sheet so if you're taking excessive risks in your trading operation right that could hit your balance sheet which could then you know impact your commercial banking operation so so these these things happened and we kind of had that system for a while until we hit the financial crisis of 2008. Um, yeah, and this, we'll go on. No, it's okay. Uh, so this is this this happened because there wasn't quite enough regulation. Not people didn't quite know what was going on in in CDOs or in mortgage-backed securities, um, and so you see a, another. It's history is just a giant pendulum. So you see the pendulum kind of swing the other way in terms of regulation post financial crisis in 2008. Yeah, I mean it. It really history in this in, in this situation really comes full circle, right? I mean, because what was one of the primary causes of the financial crisis? Well, it was these huge, these enormous banks, right? That were able to get enormous because of that deregulation, and they became too big to fail. And they were doing things that your traditional commercial bank wouldn't be doing. They well, were they underwriting. Just couldn't do. Yeah, that it's they couldn't. That, it's do. not that they but, wouldn't. It's just that they could not do these things. If you were talking about your local bank, exactly, exactly. They were underwriting. They would take all of these mortgages and then they pushed in. They went into subprime mortgages. They would package them together into these securities, and, they, and then they would have derivative off of these securities, and then they would sell those to investors. Well, that decreased the incentive to really watch, you know, to really manage your risk at the bank level. And so then, you know, that it just turned into, you know, it, it fueled the housing bubble and then it fueled the crash, which really, when you go back to the Great Depression, it was a very similar, you know, type, uh, you know, sequence of events that led to that speculative frenzy and to that crash. Yeah. So you end up with Dodd-Frank, which creates all these regulations to make sure that banks are sufficiently funded so that this stuff doesn't happen again and that banks have to know what what all the laws are in all the separate states and that they have to know what's in their mortgage-backed securities and it puts it just put a ton of regulations on them. My mom used to work for Fannie Mae and she worked for a couple of the other big banks helping them figure out how to navigate this regulation. So this is dinner table talk for me growing up in high school which wasn't interesting then, fascinating now. Um but oh shoot, we are almost out of time. Um yeah, so financial Let's crisis. Wrap it up. That's where yeah. we are. Yeah, Basel, Basel three, Dodd Frank. This is where we are now. We're we're in a whole new world of banking where there's a lot more regulation. Banks are in theory safer, 
but it is a complicated maze to navigate. And as usual, humans are probably going to find some kind of loophole in these regulations. So we'll we'll see what happens. I'm kind of on the edge of my seat to see what happens over the next 50 years. <laughs> so uh, any last thoughts, Maxfield? The, uh, that, I think Gabby, Gabby, Gabby really wrapped it up well there. Yeah, I mean, it's just that we are in that post-financial crisis period where everybody's just going to be careful and that and you know so we're probably just going to see less risk and thereby therefore less investment in the system for for certainly for the foreseeable future so as i told my students um one of the things you always have to ask yourself when you're studying history is so what so so what why do we care about all these things and i think the question was answered throughout the podcast right which is that all of all of the history of banking of america is really the history of america um, and what happens with the banks is really going to dictate what happens to the United States and now the world, really. This is why you should care about banking in the United States of America. Thank you guys very much for joining us. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. Let us know what you think about the length of this show, because I'm pretty sure it's really long. (laughs) Thank you guys for joining us, and have a great week. 